So, this is exciting. I didn't sleep last night. Full disclosure. <laughs> I could, could not fall asleep. And then I woke up uh, several times throughout the night because I was excited slash terrified about this moment right now. It's podcast Eve. Welcome to Notice History, a No History podcast, the podcast where we explore the intersection of history in our day-to-day lives, where we uncover the history around us, where we strive to stop and take notice of the ways history impacts our day-to-day lives, whether it be through the media, our daily interactions, or even our surroundings. Have you ever thought about the history portrayed in your favorite TV show, or considered the nuances of nostalgia-based advertising, or wondered how the return of the long-form census will have an impact for future generations? By taking notice of, and discussing, the intersections of past and present, we hope to achieve a better understanding of ourselves as well as the culture in which we live. At No History, we provide historical services, which means that we help individuals and organizations that want to research, present, or document the past. We have worked with museums, government bodies, indigenous organizations, nonprofits, and corporations on a variety of projects, both large and small. We believe that what sets no history apart is our passion for the past. For us, history isn't just a job, it's what we've always wanted to do. And some of us have always wanted to have a history-themed podcast. So with that, um, you're probably wondering who we even are. Um, So we're happy to go around and talk about ourselves a little bit. Uh, Why don't we start off with the illustrious bearded Nick? Uh, My name's Nick Bridges. I have a beard. (laughs) I've studied history probably my entire life, uh, which has brought me right to this exact moment in front of a microphone with two people who are equally passionate about the subject. So I've studied a lot of Irish and British history, but I also have a big passion for Canadian history being Canadian. And um, we've done a lot of different things here that have been exciting. So yeah, over to uh, you, Keely. Um, I'm Keely McCavitt, and I am also very passionate about history and historical work. I studied studio art, art history, and then it kind of morphed into museum studies, object studies, and then into repatriation. So I've done a lot of different things, but it's all been around history and research. And I'm a recent transplant from London, Ontario, and Ottawa is far too cold. Over to you. <laughs> it, it really is way too cold. Uh, my name is Robin Mullins, and those bios were way too uh, straight-laced for my taste. You can be edgy if you want. Well, I've already failed at being formal. Um, <laughs> so, so I've actually studied um, history for as long as I can remember as well. I did my undergrad in a specialization of history, but then I didn't think that was enough classes. So I actually found ways to take more history classes under different codes. So by my estimation, I think I only actually took like two courses in my entire degree that were not history related, and they were also mandatory. So um, (laughs) yeah, so I can't get enough of this thing, and I'm super (laughs) excited to be here talking about it. Today's episode is all about the Olympics. At the time we're recording this, the opening ceremonies in Pyeongchang are only days away. But by the time it reaches your ears, the games will have finished. These are the 23rd Winter Olympics. The first Winter Olympics were held in Chamonix, France in 1924. The Winter Games, like the summer ones, have historically offered nations the opportunity to come together through sport while also showcasing their own national talent and unity. The Olympics are therefore an important nation-building event, 
and we have certainly seen this in Canada, both as a participant and as a host country. In this episode, we're going to explore the various elements of history that are layered in our experiences of the Olympics, sometimes hiding just beneath the surface, while other times right in front of us. Whether it be through the ways in which Canadian history and culture is represented at the opening ceremonies in Montreal, Calgary, and Vancouver, the clothing collections we see our athletes wearing and then the rush to purchase these for ourselves, or the pride we feel in watching the Canadians compete in hockey while we think back on our wins with nostalgia. We'll also dive into some past controversies to see how nation-building excludes others from the narrative and can work to divide countries at an event designed to bring them together. We want to notice the history present at the Olympics, particularly where it hits home with Canadians. So I think it makes sense to start off with where we've actually been the host country. You know, Vancouver 2010 isn't that far into our past. The opening ceremonies really is where a lot of our history is portrayed. Um, it's something that we all watch. I don't really watch most of the rest of the Olympics, but I always catch the opening ceremonies or the highlights at the very least. Hmm. Certainly, I caught the Vancouver 2010 ones because that was a big deal. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a country's turn to show its pride and show its history. And they put tons and tons of money into this huge production. Um, and the Vancouver Olympics, especially, were really trying to showcase the multicultural aspect of Canada and bring in that First Nations vibe. So mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting because, I mean, I hope that we all noticed that there was history in front of our eyes or a representation of history as we were watching it. But, you know, you don't always think about history when you're watching the Olympics. So I'm sure that it caught some people by a surprise. Yeah, it's really a, a venue that countries use to portray their history to the world. So it really tells us a lot about what the government wanted to show the rest of the planet, how we think about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because, um, so we were reading, I was reading this article that I will, we will post into the show notes, but it's called Colluding with the Enemy, Nationalism and Depictions of Aboriginality in Canadian Olympic Moments. And it's by Jennifer Adis. And she actually goes through and talks about the three different opening ceremonies and the Aboriginal or Indigenous aspects in each of them. Her descriptions are really fascinating. She goes back to what the International Olympics Committee wanted to accomplish in each of those and what the different organizations within each city that was in charge of hosting was going after. And the first two in Montreal and then also in Calgary, they both had a really specific desire to showcase Indigenous peoples within it. But neither of them really consulted with Indigenous peoples. In the first one, they just kind of showed up and they were like, hey, so uh, you're going to put on these outfits, you're going to follow these dancers, and then you're going to do around, go around and do this little dance. And hey, we, we, we showed you guys to the, to the rest of the world. We, we, we brought you out. Yeah. And they didn't thank them or anything. Uh, and in the second one, they portrayed them. They decided to do... Um, a representation of like Western Canadianism. And that's the one in Calgary, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so for that one, they actually had a the- like a triple theme and it was um, cowboys and the Mounties and Indians. And so they had these three groups out and initially they actually wanted to have a wagon burning where they were going to have like all the cowboys coming out with their chuck wagons and they were going to have a race and they were going to have the you know natives come out and basically just attack them and and burn everything down, which luckily got shut down while it was still in the planning stages, but it would have been pretty offensive. Yeah, there's not a lot of forethought put into uh, that one. Not at all. So luckily someone there had a brain and said, no, we are not doing this. So they did not do that. And instead, um, they just had them all kind of present and they had their own little entrances and everything. But 
even with that one, they still didn't really consult. Um, they brought a lot of people in and they had, they, they dictated what they were going to wear and what the outfits would be. And it was really that idea of the imaginary Indian instead of the actual representations of people and their cultures and what they would actually wear and how they would behave and their own rituals and their own practices and their own culture. Whereas with the Vancouver ones, from the very beginning when they had their bid, they actually brought in different groups and they had them consult for it. That's a really striking contrast with Montreal and Calgary too. So the bid committee actually engaged in inclusive planning. So they consulted with different First Nations organizations and um, they included West Coast Indigenous art in the bid materials that they brought forward. And it proudly proclaimed in the bid book that Vancouver would embrace multiculturalism and they have this unique position that Vancouver is the host of the world, that Canada brings together cultures of the world as well as an ancient and rich First Nations culture in one harmonious society. And it suggested that Canada is a living mosaic of peoples and cultures from around the world. Virtually every nation has joined Canada's First Nations, making us a truly multicultural society. So pretty big, big claims that they had there, but Really, they had an intent at least to include people from the beginning. So it started out a lot more uh, inclusive than the other two did. Definitely, yeah. You get the real uh, nation-building narratives there, too, where they're trying to um, push the the idea of multiculturalism, but also that image of multiculturalism. They're commercializing that in a sense, like, come to Canada, we're multicultural, we're all getting along together. Yeah, which is always the idea that you want to... Promote And it was definitely promoted the other two as well in Calgary and in Montreal. Um, in Vancouver, because it's such a multicultural city, there was even like a stronger push towards that idea. So I don't know if you guys actually remember the opening ceremonies, anything about them? I remember there being a giant ice crystal thing in the middle, right? Yeah, they had yeah. these giant ice crystals. <laughs> Didn't watch the sports, but I watched, <laughs> watched the opening Fair enough. ceremony. Opening ceremony. <laughs> Everybody watches the opening ceremony. I feel like I just catch more of the sports than the opening ceremonies. Like, I just heard about the Beijing opening ceremony. So, um, the Canadian, the Vancouver 2010 Olympics, the way that they opened it actually is, it had this really great centering on indigenous culture, and there was like all these totem poles that they had coming out of the ground, which eventually turned into the ice sculpture things that you're thinking oh, okay. of. Um, so they started it out really well by having it be really indigenous. Uh, they had all these people coming out. They were representative of their own culture. They were able to wear what they wanted. But even from the beginning, they wanted to have this idea, the story of a nation living in harmony with nature and with indigenous people. So it, it really did start off like this is our, uh, I think they had like a creation story is how they started it off. Oh, uh, okay. They had all these different simulations and like markers that they had within it. They had um, totem poles that were replaced by, as I said, simulated frozen tundra with a whitish floor and glittering snowflakes. And they had Donald Sutherland doing a voiceover, which I totally <laughs> did not. I either have forgotten that or I didn't realize at the time. I didn't pick up on it. Yeah. So they brought in a whole bunch of indigenous youth at the beginning and had, you know, all this stuff grounded in, in the origins, I guess, is how they viewed it, of Canada with Indigenous peoples. And then they had it gradually going to, air quotes, modernization, where they had, like, Brian Adams came out and Nelly Furtado, and they had all these people singing songs and doing all these different things. And it kind of moved away from being, it became less and less Indigenous and more and more multicultural. But instead of incorporating Indigenous into that multicultural, right. they just erased it as it went right. on. I think that's a typical narrative you have when you, you get these sort of events and just discussions about Canadian history more generally in textbooks or 
in public history where it's like, well, here's here's the part with indigenous people, and now we're now we're here we are now. They aren't here anymore, and they're pushed out of the narrative. And it's that idea that that's enough, right? Yeah, like that. That's oh, exactly well, we it. acknowledged them, so they should be happy. What more could they want? Like we acknowledge mm-hmm. that they had this place first, so good enough which is again like that idea that they're no longer with us or that Mm -hmm. they're no longer distinct in our society that there's no place for them and we're just reinforcing that continually so i mean i think vancouver 2010 did a lot better of a job Mm -hmm. than the other two but it's still whitewashed right it's It's still still cleansed the history it still made it palpable for international audiences it wasn't going to talk about things that were offensive to maybe the Canadian government that they didn't want the international community to know about. Yeah, it definitely was still playing it safe and mm-hmm. not as representative of modern culture as it could have been, which is really too bad. Um, although one cool thing is that as much as they did erase a lot of the Indigenous stuff as it went further into the future or the, the modern day aspect of their opening ceremony, they did include a Métis fiddler, Sierra Noble, who made a really brief appearance in the middle when they were going through the different kind of regions of Canada. They had representations throughout. So she came out and did some fiddle playing, but that was pretty much like the only time that a person of Indigenous background came out or was featured after the, the origin story portion. So yeah, I mean, I think good for trying. I mean, better than Montreal, where they just dressed dressed up French Canadians in, like, some kind of Indigenous garb, where they're like, this'll do. I know, and a bunch of them weren't actually Indigenous. That's a lot of them saying, were French yeah. Canadians. Just French Canadians. Yeah, people, just yeah. dressed up, like, leading them into figuring out how to do it properly. Like, oh, this is the way that you do it. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It is. It is insane to think. And yet, it's... I mean, I don't know the how far past that we've really moved, but... Yeah. So those are things that you can notice when you watch the Olympics. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with uh, South Korean history, but I'm sure that there will be a lot of cues that will be included in that one that Mm -hmm. will be going over my head, but maybe I should actually research and want to know more about. Like, I'm sure there will be lots of angry people or people who are excluded from that narrative or who are trying to be included, but imperfectly included. And um, it's just something interesting to consider that... When you're watching someone else's country that isn't your own, you might not notice it as much. But then when we see our own country being portrayed, it's a lot easier to pick out the things that are done imperfectly. Mm -hmm. So um, Indigenous people were involved in more than just the opening ceremonies. They also uh, were a huge uh, part of a boycott during the 1988 Olympics. So in preparation for the 1988 Winter Olympics, the Glenbow Museum actually began creating an exhibit that was eventually called The Spirit Sings, Artistic Traditions of Canada's First Peoples. And it was going to end up containing over 650 Canadian native objects that were going to be drawn from foreign collections where the items had been taken from Canada without permissions of the First Nations people. So this is all in the lead up to the Calgary Olympics. And uh, in 1986, the Lubicon Lake Cree in Alberta announced that they were going to boycott the 1988 Olympics to draw attention to their unresolved land claim. And it was this huge scale boycott that ended up happening. The Olympics were really too big for them to focus at all there. So instead, they decided to focus it specifically on the exhibition instead of boycotting the Olympics. But really, that's where it started out was they thought, you know, it's all these people coming here and we want to make our issues known. And this hasn't been resolved. The Glenbow exhibit 
that's where it all happened at the Glenbow Museum. So uh, the further reason for boycotting the exhibit is that the Shell Oil Company actually sponsored the exhibition, while at the same time, they were the main cause for the undisputed land claim with oil wells springing up throughout the traditional territory for these indigenous people. So really not great, like a confluence of not great events. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, yeah. It makes sense why they wanted to boycott. So it was this huge thing. They ended up creating support networks. They joined their cause um, to try to stop the museums in Europe from loaning items to the Glenbow Museum. They didn't want to get anything even... They wanted to try to halt it as much as they possibly could. Um, So in the end, they weren't successful because only 12 out of the 110 museums that were lending items kept them back. So that's not a great percentage it's less than 10 percent but i mean they still got 12 museums to decide not to lend things which is i mean at at that time without social media being able to tweet storm people and cause people to change their minds that way i think it's still actually quite impressive i think so for sure especially given the history and context of museums and their collections like have you been to the the british museum in london is just a series of things from places that britain has been i know (laughs) the fact that they actually managed to get a museum to join in with them not let alone 12 is really it's really impressive yeah Yeah, it's pretty cool so this boycott that started out as being a boycott of the olympics but ended up turning into a museum boycott Mm -hmm. um really highlighted the inadequacies around consultation in canadian museum practices which is interesting because consultation is what we just talked about with the opening ceremonies that it often comes back to this consultation aspect i mean there's a lot more to it but if you're not even consulting with people then like of course, it's not going to go great. It's exactly, not yeah. going People to go great. People will be upset. Of course, they'll be upset. Because you haven't even asked them. I know. They think like, about something. It's, it's like someone going and buying you ice cream and telling you you have to eat it and hoping that they got you the right flavor. Yeah, like, you better like Rocky Road. Yeah, because that's all you're ever going to eat for the rest of your life. Like, no, that's not, that's not a thing. It's not great. So, yeah, I think that consultation is important and it's just so unf- unfortunate when it doesn't pan out that way. So, you know, there's other nation-building aspects to the Olympics that I am less uh, savvy about, shall we say. But, Nick, I believe you are the resident expert. Yeah, I can uh, I can just take this and run with it. Please do. Because the Olympics is sort of a event as a whole has, if we think about it, maybe you could think about it to yourself. Like, oh, it's always been about, like, nation-building, and people have always loved it. But when it was first founded in uh, 1889, I believe, it was just around sort of amateur sport. And yes, it you would represent your country and all this, but the whole concept or the idea that the rest of the country would be watching you and actually care about what you're doing, non-existent, hmm. not really a thing. The first major um, showcase of the nationalism in the Olympics is with the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, because Hitler comes along and he says, I'm going to show everyone what the Aryan race can do. Of course. So it's just totally tied up with fascism. He makes it his um, just favorite event of all time. There are narratives that come afterwards that say, you know what, he didn't really succeed in his goals. But that's where um, you have an almost watershed moment for the Olympics. So anyways, Hitler goes ahead with that. Um, But to give you some perspective on what Canadians thought of it at the time, in Parliament, other MPs questioned our Prime Minister at the time, William Lyon Mackenzie King, over whether Canadians should actually participate in the events. And he said, quote, It is very doubtful that anyone participating in the Olympic Games is a representative of this country. Whoa. Right? Those are some pretty harsh words. Yeah. And so we get post-war, totally changes. 
you get the tensions of the Cold War seeping into the event. And mm-hmm. the two major superpowers, you have the USA and the USSR, Russia and America, going sort of head-to-head, clashing for medals. The real driver of the competitive aspect of the Olympics in this period is Russia. When they're founded as a country, they don't initially join the Olympics. Okay. They join what's called the, I believe it's the Red Games, but it's a affiliate of the Communist International. So it's sort of the idea of like new socialism and socialism without like capitalist democracy. Right. Okay. Monarchy, fascism, yada, yada, yada. So they have their own sort of games that aren't as popular. And then they eventually join the Olympics post-war and they create a giant sort of state-sponsored system where athletes are technically members of the army, but realistically they're just doing their sport all the time. And um, they do this through the period. They win a lot of medals. And then the Canadian and the American Olympic committees sort of start doing the same thing. Where they're like, all right, there's no such thing as amateurism anymore. we got to get professional athletes. So Canada specifically clashes with the Olympic committee over hockey. Because what the Olympics won't allow is NHL players into the Olympics. Um, say, say, citing that they are professional athletes who get paid. They make a wage. They're making a living. They are not amateurs. And we cannot allow them. At the same time, the Russian teams were army members who were training in hockey all day. Igor Larinov, who's a former Soviet player, former Detroit Red Wings player after the fall of the wall, detailed his experiences in the 80s as they would skate on the ice for four hours a day. Um, So four hours at the beginning of the day, the rest of the day, so about, I think, six to eight hours, they would lift weights and train. He described it as a prison in hindsight. Well, it sounds like prison for me. Yeah. <laughs> but what it, what's interesting about his piece on it, it's in the Players' Tribune. We can put a link to it in the show notes, Yeah, too. definitely. He um, talks about how hockey gave them a sort of freedom. Like, when they're on the ice, they could do whatever they want. Right. But otherwise, they're always on some strict, strict schedule. They always had to be doing this, 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 this. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really, it's kind of interesting dynamic though, right? So you have in the period Russian teams just cleaning house because the best players in Canada and America specifically, um, you have some other players from like Sweden and Europe more generally, but for the most part, you have Canadians and Americans in the NHL. They're being paid to play because they can make a living playing. So they just don't go to the Olympics. So (laughs) what the NHL is doing now, people say they've founded their own World Cup But really, they're continuing a World Cup they founded back in the 90s. So they started something to be an alternative to the Olympics because professional players weren't being allowed. So they've had three World Cups now. Um, Two were in the 90s. One was recently in 2016, the previous NHL season, right before it started. Um, But they're nowhere near as popular as the Olympics. There is an international competition for hockey that happens every year from the double IHF, which is the International Ice Hockey Federation, um, which that's an okay tournament too. What the NHL is doing now is roots in the 80s and the 70s when they weren't allowed at the Olympics. So now they, they're trying to get that revenue back for themselves. They said, our players aren't going. Right. And then um, other players have said that, well, the players have always said sort of all the way, the way along that they want to go. And they're really uh, pushing this idea that they, they want to represent their countries. So if you think about that's and that's an outgrowth of the post-war period where now you're representing your country. William Lyme Mackenzie King, you're not representing your country. Yeah. He doesn't believe in it. But now, and you hear it increasingly in the media everywhere, is that these athletes are representing Canada and they're a reflection on Canada. Mm-hmm. I don't know if athletes should be a reflection on Canada, 
but they are apparently. Yeah, like so, it or not. <laughs> like it or not, they are apparently. So this this has roots though in that um, clash between Canada and Russia in the sort of 70s and 80s. The first major competitions they had against each other were the Summit Series. So I think everyone's probably seen photos of that where you have Mario Lemieux and Gretzky like celebrating together right, as they've yeah. like, crushed the Red Army and all this these <laughs> these ideas, right? So it's it's built on a very it's very much built in the model of that comes out of Cold War tensions. So it's it's an anti-communist and an anti-Russia model. It's like pro-capitalist. We are professional athletes. Professional athletes are the way to go. Right. And that's what Canada is. So it's Canada in antithesis to Russia. Whereas now you have Canada in antithesis to the USA. So it's sort of building along. That's some of the history we notice at the Olympics. We hope you notice something new too. This segment is called Oot and a Boot. So this is basically just going to be a couple little snippets that I have thought of, we've thought of, people around no history have thought of, and hopefully, because this is the first episode, in the future, you guys will send some stuff in so we don't have to work so hard. And also because we want to hear from you. Okay, so for some little things, I'm a recent transplant from London, Ontario, and the last time that I was in Ottawa, I was in grade 7. And we did a tour of the Parliament buildings, and I recalled very vividly that there was a cat sanctuary on the back of the Parliament there buildings. There was! And yeah. it filled my heart with joy and wonder, and then I forgot about it. So yesterday, actually, I was standing in that park that's across from the Parliament buildings, and the museum's behind you, and it's snowing, and it was freezing. And then I looked over, and I could see the statue that is near the park and all I could think of was my god the cats what are the cats doing it's so cold anyone who's listening who did not know there was a cat sanctuary on parliament hill I was reading some history on it like when I went home I was doing some research and the way that it was worded for when they were no longer needed because these cats were brought in to help with the mice and rat infestation that was in the center block of the parliament buildings in the 20s and then it said they were out of a job in 1955. Aww. And I just thought, I was like, oh, no. But they got to live there. So that was really nice. They got a pretty good pension. Yeah. yeah for being government, government employees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's my first little tidbit. That's one of the things that I noticed. That's really cool. Another thing comes from Alice Glaze, who works at No History here. And she, well, she let us know about this word, which is totally a real word. It's in the dictionary and it's called a bunny hug or the phrase is bunny hug, but it refers to a hoodie. I don't think that's a thing. But I, like I had never heard of it before. It's a name for a hoodie. So, and it seems to be very regional and specific to Saskatchewan. And it's a bunny hug in the way that there's like the little pouch on the front of your hoodie. And it's supposed to be like a dance from the 1900s, 1920s, where it's like this weird conga line where you like grab the person in front of you's stomach and you kind of hunch on each other uh, it sounds creepy that sounds I do not want to do no. that dance so it's like oh bunny hug and then like when you read about it you're like oh no um so one actually comes from our silent guardian Emily here um about the Omega timekeeping exhibition that is in Seoul for the Olympics so tie this into the Olympics thing they're the official Omega sorry is the official timekeeper for the Olympics, and they have this big exhibition that's going on in the Lot World Mall in Seoul. So basically, it's an exhibition 
that is ranging through all the different ways that time has been kept in the Olympics. So one of the examples given in the article was the difference between a starter's pistol and the new electric guns that they have. So I think that's interesting because it's something that, I mean, I haven't thought about it that much ever before. Yeah. And then just to think about what a huge role that plays in the games, I think it's pretty cool. It yeah. looked really snazzy in the photos. There are a lot of things to new- notice oot and aboot. These are just some of the things that we notice oot and aboot this week. Awesome. Well, that concludes, I think, our first episode. Um, and hopefully uh, you enjoyed listening and hopefully you've learned something. Hopefully you're starting to notice history around you that you otherwise might not have. And I hope that you'll listen next time when we talk about more subjects and more things that you may not have noticed before. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Nick Bridges, Anna Kuntz, Cassandra Moss, with audio mixing by Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.